As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Dembele, to me, sort of moved a bit like a fish. Like, you know when you see, like, fish in the water and they, like suddenly dart off and turn the other way. Kulazewski, I think, has a similar sort of quality. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly. I'm joined today by The Athletic's Jack Pitbrook and James Moore for the first, thank goodness, of the return of two podcast episodes uh, this week and every week throughout the upcoming season. Charlie will be in for Jack on Thursday. Healthy squad rotation as we challenge for the Premier League, the Champions League, the Carabao Cup and the FA Cup and all things beyond that. Both James and Jack return to White Hart Lane for the first game. I'll ask them in a second what they missed um, about the, the ground and the Premier League and all the rest of it. But it would be remiss of us. The club no longer notes um, James Moore's birthday, but we do. Happy birthday for yesterday, James. Thanks, Danny. Yeah, the club didn't send me a birthday card, which I think is the first time I've not had one since I was about like 11 or something. So I I, I am a bit put out. Yeah. It is my understanding that there are some people at the club who do listen to this. So... Like if they want to, you know, yeah. pay that Fabio, forward somehow. Daniel, Antonio, fine. if you're yeah, listening. Daniel, Daniel, if you're listening, you know, uh, and be, be, I will accept a sizable discount on my season ticket uh, in lieu of the card. I would ex- I would expect to send a birthday card to an ordinary fan. Never mind James Moore, the athletic. Come on, Tottenham. I Let's know. have this it is, right. It seems mad to me. What a PR fail that, that is. That is to- totally, totally scandalous. And, and, and before we get on to what you missed about it, just to say that after the game, I was worried that a lot of the tweets were just pictures of people in the sunshine. And then there was an amazing photograph a guy outside the stadium um, with a tattoo on his back. Um, it was sent out by the one I saw by Ledley King himself. And it's a guy with the most detailed and gigantic Spurs tattoo on his back. I, I, and if, top left, Harry Kane. Top right, Glenn Hoddle. Bottom right, Ledley King. Then there's Van, Raphael van der Vaart and perhaps the one that's least easily recognisable is Jermaine Defoe. I can tell by the clapping and they used to do after the game. Big Spurs cockerel in the middle of it. It is amazing. And of course, it's a generational thing for people like me. Very frightening. Why would you come? First of all, have either of you two got a tattoo? No, I have not. No, no. whatever considered it. I kind of think... That's uh, Oh. To me, tattoo, tattoos are a bit like 
hats in that I kind of think they look all right on other people, but I, I think they would look dreadful on me. The, diff- so the difference being, of course, you can remove a hat if it doesn't turn out hat. not to suit you. I mean, you. I, think, I think the technology exists that you can have a tattoo removed as well. It's not quite as simple. I don't think you need lasers to remove a hat. A hat. No. <laughs> but I think I have seen a bit in a Bond film where, you know, it doesn't matter. I don't think I'd get one. I, we, we know what football's like, how quickly it all changes. I, I don't think it would be insane. Even the badge changed. I mean, so I, yeah, it kind of feels like a bit of a punt. To I me. watched Joe Rodon making his um, his de- debut for Wren at the weekend, or bits and pieces of it. And of course, his arms are absolutely covered. They look like solid sleeves, I believe that's the phrase. I was also impressed with BT's commentator falling back on the fact that his name looks a bit French and actually calling him Rodon. Um, as he passed, <laughs> as he passed the ball about, but the tattoo mate, whoever you are, is absolutely magnificent, and as I say, a tiny bit frightening. And the only time I ever had even remotely that sort of thing, a million years ago when I was at school, the Sun reporting on one of Martin Chivers's then Spurs great centre forward rampages through one through the UEFA Cup, um, ran a headline that started with the words Euro Chiv. Um, and I'd never seen language cut down like this before. At least my teenage self hadn't noticed it. And for several weeks, I had Euro written on one set of knuckles and Chiv on the other, but in ink. I, just, I used to renew them in the school every morning instead of listening to the assembly. I had Euro Chiv written on my knuckles. I just liked the phrase. Um, was it great to be back at the ground, lads? It was really, really good. It was like the perfect opening opening uh, game of the season, really. It was... The weather was great. The walk from Seven Sisters up to the stadium was lovely. And so many Spurs fans would have gone into that game with so much optimism from the way they finished last season and the signings and everything. And then quite rarely for this kind of occasion, they would have left the ground at least as optimistic as they were when they arrived. And that's not usually the case after the first game of the season. I really enjoyed it. I had a very nice afternoon. Thank you. Yeah, as Jack says, lovely weather, comfortable victory. The moment of... Mild peril, which, as you know, I'm quite a big fan of yeah. in a football match, and a, and a, and a, a, like a kind of uh, rip snorting performance. There are a few sort of meaty challenges in there, which I guess is kind of what you expect from this team, and I think that's maybe maybe what sets this team apart from the Pochettino team. I think that could be the thing that takes them even further in my mind. Yeah, uh, just a couple. I mean, we like, you expect them from Romero, but there's a couple from Bentancur as well. Like really meaty chat, like one where the ball is just going to go out for throwing. And Southampton were get like on the counter attack, but they were going to get the throw. And then Ben Tanko just completely wiped out. I don't, I don't know who it was now. I did raise Great. one eye. Great I did stuff. raise one eyebrow when Romero thought it was okay to clean somebody out in midfield when Spurs were four one up with a few minutes to go. Um, I think you might want to save the absolute ultra violence for important uh, challenges. So James had a, uh, had a brilliant day, and I think it was only spoiled by not getting a birthday card the following day from the club. Correct. All right. We are top of the league. We are top of the league. Copyright. Um, I'm going to look at it from a positive and a negative point of view. Let's start um, with the negative. Um, if I with my small n, um, we we're not going to again copyright get carried away, are we? Because Southampton look to me like a team that are utterly dependent on James Ward-Prowse and could, uh, left to their own devices, get themselves relegated. Jack. Yeah, they were pretty bad. Uh, I thought uh, Lavia in central midfield was really really good. played some good touches. You're absolutely really right. Good. Yeah, um, but there were just no goals in the team. Like they had Armstrong and Aribo up front, um, and Armstrong's not really a goal scorer, and Aribo's a midfielder. So, uh, and it didn't really get this. Apart from that one goal they scored, they never really looked like they were going to score. Apart from that, um, <laughs> apart from the goal they scored, yeah. they didn't look like they were going to score. That's true. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I didn't think they looked good. I mean, this is their problem last season, wasn't it? They had like four centre forwards, and they all scored like four goals each. They they look kind of neat and tidy, but if they're not if if they're like I mean that's the third Spurs goal I mean 
one of the most comical guys I've ever seen. Yeah. Absolutely ludicrous from Salisu to like play um, Royale on side and then just turn the ball into the back of his own net anyway. By going, it was absolutely crazy. By going for it with it with his completely wrong foot. I mean, I, I don't know what combination of physiognomy and physics that made him decide I'm going to go I know what I'll do I'll put this foot to the ball because that's bound to work isn't it they were they were um not very good Southampton so we think we need to pull our horns in a little bit about that but on the other hand for Spurs to rattle up four goals and for Kane and Son to arguably be their least effective players certainly not to score um that is I think that, that that's good that's that's almost a plan b isn't it I mean, Son set up the second goal, and Kane, I'd say, was quite heavily involved in probably pretty much every attack that Spurs didn't score really. Um, when he, you know, when he dropped off and played a few through balls, they had a chance for two chances for Son, I think, in the first but half. But by his own standards, and a couple in the second half. But yeah, 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 um, yeah. So it's good to like watch a team play well, win that emphatically, and not seemingly be reliant on those two players. Yeah, that's definitely big. And one of the things we've talked about for the last couple of years is they need a third. Goal scorer, like a third player to get over 10 goals. And on the basis of that performance from Kulisevsky and a few at the end of last season, you would certainly be reasonably confident there's a chance of him doing that. Yeah, and what I'm going to like about Kulisevsky is going to get 10 identical goals and no one will be able to stop him, which will be absolutely fantastic. But again, I, I can't judge it, uh, Jack, and we'll get on to Kulisevsky next. I can't quite judge it about, about the standard of Southampton, but it appeared that once Spurs, and Hassan Hootl said it afterwards, once they went behind... They appeared to lock into another gear, um, much of which was about getting the ball, retrieving the ball um, in a very effective way. Yeah, that's probably what stood out to me most watching the first half was how quick, fit and strong Tottenham looked. You know, these guys, they, remember they never had a preseason last year under Conte. Um, and this is the first time they've had the proper Conte preseason, and they all, they all just looked so sharp. Even guys who you know maybe didn't look especially at times have had problems with fitness or whatever. Uh, I mean, Cessignon is really the best example of this because he was playing right down in front of us in the first half and had this great one-on-one battle with Carl with Carl Walker Peters, which of course is how he he scored his header. But he just he he looked in great nick, and he wasn't the only Spurs player to look like that. So and. And even when they conceded, there was no, I didn't detect any sense of kind of brittleness or of, you know, the uh, the players kind of getting a bit nervous or anxious. They just continued to execute the Conte game plan at 100%. And so it was it didn't really feel like that much of a surprise. So we've all seen games in the past where, you know, Spurs have been playing at home against a team they should be beating. They concede early on, the fans get on their back and the players get anxious. But that didn't really happen at all yesterday, sorry, on Saturday. There was that one moment, I don't know if you remember where... I think Spurs were 1-0 down. Hoiberg had the ball on halfway line and passed it back to Lloris instead of going forward. And a lot of the fans got on Hoiberg's back at that point. But that was just one moment. And generally speaking, I thought the players were really impressive in their, the way that all they just looked completely focused on executing the plan. And I can't work out, um, in, as a preview to, to the next thing I'm going to say, whether I'm uh, getting uh, involved here with absolute hubris and, and arrogance or whether I'm just developing a big club mentality but if there's ever um, such a thing as a routine 4-1 victory in the Premier League, that appeared to me to be a routine 4-1 victory. Continuing, you know how teams that do terrible at the end of last season um, then continue the habits into the new season, hello Wolves, etc. Um, but Spurs were racking up tons of goals at the end of last season. Here they are, another four. So that is routine. And I'm sorry if that sounds uh, arrogant or, or to use the current parlance, deluded. But there it is. There was nothing routine, James, uh, about the uh, performance 
of Dejan Kulusevsky. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm putting this to you first because, of course, um, Jack uh, has been carrying the flag for Kulusevsky rather high uh, ever since he arrived. Was it me? Was it you, James, who said he couldn't play at all after two games? It was also me who said last week he'd win PFA Player of the Year. Oh, that so, was you. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, and there's been a lot of people, been a lot of people on Twitter. <laughs> there's been a lot of people on Twitter since the game saying, you know, tweeting all of us and saying, you know, praising Jack for his prediction that Sessegnon will get in the England squad, which is a prediction that relies on Gareth Southgate picking the right players. So it isn't going to happen. Right. Uh, Kulisevsky winning of, the PFA award a, a, a relies on the PFA picking the right winner. Yeah, I, I was spot on. It's going to happen, isn't it? Uh, it, it will, it's fun. And you, you. Uh, now the tables are turned. You, Jack, have continued uh, to uh, to show those of us who took the path of ignorance in the early days of his career at Spurs um, just how good Kulusevski is. You've written about him for the Athletic. Yeah, I thought he was amazing. I, I love watching him play. He was, um, I think he was at least as good. That's probably the, the best I've seen him play for Spurs, I yeah. think, Saturday. I don't think he's played better than that b- before. Just the absolute range of stuff that he can do. Like, you know, the incredible cross through to Sessegnon for the first. His fourth goal, just like a classic Kulisevsky finish. There was some brilliant little, there's a pass through to Sessegnon, a little dink pass through to Romero. And so the way that he carries the ball as well, like his ability to, you know, he's got a kind of body swerve away from players and uh, kind of technical skill. It's a, He's a really distinctive and interesting player to watch. And um, I think we're going to have a lot of fun watching him this season. I mean, you were asking the question, um, I guess it's a sort of, a continuation of what you were saying there of what what is he who what kind of you know what is he even comparable with anybody we've had or we've seen in the Premier League before because he is he doesn't look like he's going to skip past players he does he's not a proper winger he's not a midfielder he's not a striker what what exactly do you in your mind what do you think he is Jack well he's a kind of he's a bit of a winger but he plays on the wrong side and he's not fast like he's not like a kind of classic I've played with many wingers classic, like that over the years I'll be yeah, honest Aaron Lennon winger at all is he he's but he scores a lot of goals where he'll you know cut in from the right shoot on his left foot you know that sort of like Robin Bale way but he doesn't have any anything like the speed of Robin or Bale I think he, clearly he wants to be a 10 like his instincts are to be as a 10 and you can see this is why I think it's so ludicrous that people talk about Tottenham just needs to spend 60 million quid on a number 10 like they've got a really good number 10 already in the team he just doesn't play there um, but then I also think he's got a bit he's got maybe I'm just looking at his hair colour here but I think he's got a bit of Kevin De Bruyne about him as well just in the sort of, the sort of running power the stamina he's got the way he can he well, he, he doesn't do that kind of Gerardi thing that De Bruyne does like bursting through people in the middle of the pitch and smacking it at goal um somebody on twitter said he was like i mean i saw somebody on twitter said he was like chris waddle roberto diversa who was his coach at parma said he was a bit like pavel nedved like there's a lot of there's a wow. I, don't know, I don't know i'd be interested to hear what you guys think because there's a lot of a lot. Of, somebody mentioned Ginola. Somebody mentioned Dembele. Somebody mentioned Robert Perez. Yeah, I was going to say Andy Sinton. I think that's one. I, that's one that comes to mind to me. Um, just, just, just as a pre-warning, I'm sure we had similar sort of conversations about Ndombele early on, where we were kind of working out whether he was more Musa Dembele or Luka Modric, mm-hmm. or yeah. whether there was like a combination of the two. So, like, I'd kind of be loath to get too carried away with those comparisons. The thing that strikes me about the way he plays, and you're right, he isn't quick, Jack. But he, he can still like power past players in that way you just mentioned. He's strong rather than quick, and and that's uh, proving to be an important thing. Yeah, and, and I just think like defenders really struggle to stop him once he gets going because he's so big and strong, and his control is so his close control is so good that he can just like surge past the fullback. And I do wonder whether 
if he played through the middle, he wouldn't be able to do that. Mm. Thing that you just mentioned, the, the Gerard De Bruyne thing, where they knock it past someone and smack one for thirty yards. I just, I just, I don't know. We, I haven't seen much to suggest that he'd be able to do that kind of thing. I think it's more about going outside someone or cutting inside, jinking inside. But he's such a good player. He's great. He's just great to watch. And like when he, uh, and this is one of the things that really struck me on Saturday. And, and you know, I said like had a lovely day. It was a sunny day. Spurs won really comfortably. It was really entertaining. But watching a player like that who's doing mm. like. Just doing things you've never seen before, but that's what—that's the best thing about going to watch a like. That's the thing that justifies paying like sixty quid to go and watch a Premier League football match. It's like going to see something you've not seen before, and he is one of those players that will do like little flicks and tricks and turns and jinks and touches that like you just don't see. And I just really enjoy watching him play. The combination of that physicality and the technicality, yeah. I think, is so is so rare. Uh, it's just it's great to watch. Who was the last but who was the last Spurs player fairly recently who combined that like amazing upper body strength and balance with technical skill and ability to hold on to the ball in the middle of the pitch? It is Dembele. It? It, it is mean, Dembele. Yeah, and there was a moment where on early in the second half where it was actually in between his clever little slide pass through to Cessignon, his little dink pass to Romero, where he had the ball on the edge of the box. He had like four Southampton defenders in front of him, and he just sort of swerved away from them. And took the ball up in a different direction. The change of the, you know, there was something in that, like, change of direction and the way he holds people off that was a bit Dembele. He has, you know, like, Dembele kind of, this is going to sound so stupid, but Dembele to me sort of moved a bit like a fish. Like, you know when you see, like, fish in the water and they, like, suddenly dart off and turn the other way? Like, Dembele's movements are that kind of fluid, that, like, slick. And, like, Kulazewski, I think, has a similar sort of quality to the way he, like, turns and moves and, like, ducks and dives between players. Exactly. And that's something which is, like, a different... So I mentioned De Bruyne earlier. That's not really something that De Bruyne does. He doesn't. He doesn't kind of dribble the ball and hold on to it for a long time and no. kind of jink through or kind of swerve through people in that way that that Kulusevski can do. Danny, what do you think about the Chris Waddle comparison? Um, Chris was more of a conventional um, taker on of players uh, with with the ball. I'm not saying he was jinky Jimmy Johnson or anything, but he uh, he he was one who would drive at his man one-to-one and beat him with a piece of skill. The comparison I make with them is that, is that they're both deceptive. Waddle looked like he was on his last legs half the time and gasping for breath, but in fact ran and ran and ran and ran. Um, and Kulusevski, you're right to say he looks... He's not, a, he's not a, a, a very quick footballer, but his combination of technicality and physicality means that he gets past his players. I don't quite see the comparison with, with Chris Waddle because um, you know that, that was all about dropping your shoulder in the traditional old-fashioned way and getting past your player. What I think about Kulusevski, and I need, I need help here, because when Charlie talks about Conte ball, I'm never quite sure what he means. What I do know is that Spurs get the ball more than they did under previous managers now on the break, because of course they're playing 10 at the back. In fact, I saw Kane playing in the D at one stage in one of Southampton's rare attacks in the second half, um, which means that he's he's often getting it in Kulusevski in a great deal of space with one player in front of him. And his choice of whether to go at that player or pass the ball across it right across the entire field, as he's perfectly capable of doing, it may be that that's what the Conte ball thing is. He isolates very good players against other players, and you know, one on one, unless you're uh, uh, unless you're Virgil Van Dijk, one on ones are always difficult for defenders, and he seems to be getting a lot of those at the moment. I'll, I want to see how he 
how he's going to deal with teams that, that play a lot of people at the back. I mean, Southampton do, and indeed they had an extra man at the back yesterday, didn't they? Oh, sorry, Saturday. Um, but they're no good at it. Wait till we see teams that, that want Spurs to press them. We'll see how, how Dejan do, deals with that. But uh, the answer to your question, short answer is, I, I can't remember a player too much like him because Ginola, who does bear comparison in some ways, he was actually very quick for a big man, whereas Dejan relies on other skills and, and long may it continue. The other thing that people were talking about in last week's podcast was the upcoming World Cup. And uh, I can't did, did Spurs have six players in the last World Cup squad? Have I dreamed that? They had a whole load of players in that World Cup squad, didn't they? Dio, Deli, Rose, Kane. Um, not Winks, not Walker, he'd left yep. by then. They had a ton of players in that England squad because I can just think of four, unless I'm, yeah. I must be missing someone. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm prone to exaggeration. You may have noticed that several times. Um, but I thought Spurs had 11 players in the semi-finals. Uh, obviously, they had a big Belgian contingent. They had Moussa Sissoko and uh, Loris in the French uh, team. But we'll come, we'll come back to that. At the moment, there's only one England regular in that team, and that, of course, is the, is the England captain. Sessignon and Dyer. do we want them to go to the World Cup? Do we not want them to have a rest in the middle of the season? Can I just can I just interject? Can I just interject there and really ruin the podcast and say the player we've forgotten from Spurs? It was a player that scored in that semi final. Perisic. No, no. Who, who played for England? Yeah, Kieran Trippier. Yeah, there, there were at least five. So who was five? Thought, did Winks not go? Have I? Uh, Winks didn't I go made that up. Uh, okay, right. So five then. That, that that's good. Um, do we want Sessegnon Dyer to get the England squad with our Spurs hats on? Do we want them to to have a, a nice rest in the in the middle of the winter? I would answer that question by kind of looking through the eyes of those players. And I think for Sessegnon, it, it, I'm sure I'm sure he'd love to go to the World Cup. Like, like, and that's probably a massive understatement. But I don't think it would be like heartbreaking for him if he missed out in the circumstances. He's only really just got back, got into the Tottenham team and he's got a bit of a battle on his hands with Perisic, we imagine, to, to get that spot uh, as good a start as he's made this season. But Dyer, it feels a bit different. Uh, all, all those other options in that position, you know, there's been a lot of stuff tweeted over the weekend about, you know, Cody and Mings and whoever yeah. else. I mean, like they're not playing football matches. And, and Dyer has been playing better than all of those, or, or every other English centre back probably since the start of the yep. year. I don't know how you'd feel about that, Jack. If you think that's an exaggeration, I mean, you, you probably watch more of those other players than I do. But people like St- I mean, Stones wasn't playing loads for City the second half of the season, was he? No, not really. I mean, yeah, obviously Maguire's been pretty terrible for, for at least a year now. So, I mean, I, I think I don't. it's probably not an exaggeration to say Dyer's been the best English centre-back in this calendar year. And now he's added goals to his game. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm brilliant yeah, little absolutely. Header, by the way. Really, Yeah, really. Uh, watching that back, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, and this isn't just about Dyer, it's all footballers. Some of the, like, instinctive little things they do. And I know it's because they, he probably has done... Even Eric Dyer has probably scored headers like that in training hundreds of times. But... I, it's so weird to watch like a centre back go up and just do such a subtle little thing, like a tiny little touch onto the ball, entirely intentional as well. It's not, there's no question about that. Anyway, um, he should go to the World Cup, and he will be. I think he'll be pretty upset and probably heartbroken if he doesn't. So I kind of feel like for him, I would like him to go because right. I think the, the, the after effects on him would be negative. Whereas if Sessegnon, I don't as much as, as it'd be great for him, and I'm sure he'd love it. 
and I would like him to. I, from a Spurs perspective, I think it might be better if he doesn't. Because particularly because Perisic will, and he'll probably be knackered afterwards. I mean, I guess, I guess Jack, the, 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 for those who, you know, I, I'd like to see uh, Spurs players playing international football. I'm, I'm, I can't become one of those who, don't, you know, don't want their players to be going to, to play for their, for their countries. Um, the problem for, for uh, Sessegnon is that uh, because of this weird way the season is being concertinaed back and forth over itself... He's not going to, there's only two more games, I think, before England play their opener, isn't there? So I think for Southgate to introduce somebody brand new to the squad is unlikely. But, you know, left-back is one of those positions where he's not blessed, is he? That's true, yeah. And, and England don't have a lot of good options in that area. You know, obviously they took Luke Shaw and, and Chilwell to the Euros last summer. But, you know, they've, each of them has had their problems over the last year. Uh, so I imagine it is really, as you say, Southgate's last chance to look at someone else. But look, I think, as I said the other day, I think England are going to play back three in Qatar. And that means that he'll want he'll want an, an option as an attacking left wing back there. And, you know, if Sessegnon continues to play well, then I think that will work in his favour. Also, the fact like Sessegnon is a veteran of England youth, England youth teams and Southgate puts a lot of a lot of uh, attention to guys who played really well for the 19s and 21s over the years, which Sessegnon certainly has done. So I think that will count in his favour, ultimately. I don't know. I, I don't have a window into Southgate's thinking on this. So it might it might be that Southgate thinks, you know, we'll stick with Shaw and Shirwell for this time and then we'll bring Ryan straight in afterwards and then he'll, you know, with the idea of him being the left-back in Germany 2024. Uh, but I, you know, I, I, kind of watching him play up close on Saturday, I did think... Would Chilwell and Shaw be a better option for this position, given how well how well Sessegnon looks right now, and and the fact that he's playing for a team that's going to do really really well? I think probably going to finish ahead of Chelsea, and Man United this season, uh, playing for one of the best managers in the country. Yeah, it, 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 all, it, it all. I guess a lot of it will depend in his case on whether or not he can keep ahead of Perisic in in that left back spot, or whether we bring someone from Udinese in. As seems, you know, I don't know what's happening with all of that. Um, let's, we'll take a quick break there. When we come back, we'll hear from the Athletic Stats and Analysis King, Mark Carey, about how Spurs did it in terms of numbers. And we'll talk about, a bit like the Ravens from the Tower, the endless talk about replacing people at right wing back. And that, there he was again, Emerson Royale. I'm sorry, that reminds me to ask you. Um, having done as much chatting as we have done um, over the past eight weeks, nine weeks about Spurs' ferocious attack on the transfer market in the early parts of the transfer window. Of course, Conte then picked exactly the same team as here, having demanded all these new players, didn't pick one of them. No, because I think the players have got to get up to speed, haven't they? They've got to, you know, con- like you can't just step into an Antonio Conte squad and be instantly ready for his style of play. I think it is it is going to take time. Um, so I wasn't really that... Look, part of me would have liked to have seen the new guys play just for the novelty factor, but I think it did make sense. And look, the Spurs... We've said this a million times. The schedule is ridiculous. There are so many games coming up very, very soon. All these guys will get to play a lot of football. All right. I, I too wanted to see some of the new players, but uh, I understand. And of course, he wasn't the only manager. Loads of them have spent tons of money and then left people on the bench, as is the modern way of them proving, um, without saying it, that they know more than you, um, which I believe is up for question at times. You're listening to The View from the Lane. When we come back, we will talk about uh, the continued renaissance, if that's the right word, of Emerson Royal. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, and I'm back with some good news. I'll be hosting the Athletic Football Podcast four times a week. I'll be joined by the likes of Adam Crafton, David Ornstein, Flo Lloyd-Hughes, Matt Slater and plenty more of The Athletic's brilliant journalists. And together we'll bring you the best insight into the biggest football stories. So that's every single week, Monday to Thursday. And if you like what we do, then please follow and subscribe to The Athletic Football Podcast in all the usual places. Hello, Mark Carey here, data analyst for The Athletic. I thought I'd just provide you with some quick stats uh, and a breakdown of Spurs' 4-1 victory over Southampton on Saturday. Now, firstly, the result was, was of course, the, the biggest victory on an opening day for, for Spurs in the Premier League, which is impressive in itself. Um, but some numbers to go with it. So, 18 shots on goal um, from Spurs just shows you how much Conte's side was was on the front foot throughout the game. And I think looking at the numbers, that, that tally was the seventh highest in the Premier League since Conte joined the club. So a good start already, early doors in the in the season. Now, how did Spurs attack? What was their approach? Well, I looked at the locations of their attacking touches. So those touches in the opponent's half. And 43% of Spurs' play came down the right third of the pitch compared with 33% on the left. So mainly Dejan Kulisevsky wreaking havoc alongside uh, Emerson Royale, obviously at wing back in support there. And Emerson Royale getting an assist on the on the day, of course, already matching his his tally from last season of a grand total of one. 
so that assist was obviously for for Kulusevski, but Emerson Royal also was you know integral for that uh, that own goal that Southampton scored with Mohamed Salasu. So. You could see that Royale won the ball back and drove forward and drifted across the, the defensive line and crossed from that left-hand side and unfortunately didn't get an assist for that own goal in the stats per se, but we think obviously you can see just how much of a, an important role he played in, in two of Spurs' goals. Now, whether or not he'll get the, the game time that he wants this season is, of course, another story with Jed Spence coming in and Matt Doherty obviously being another option at right wing back, but a really impressive performance from Emerson Royale. Um, finally, Spurs were great out of possession as well. They were relentlessly looking to get the ball back really quickly. And this is showing up in the numbers. So you can look at their PPDA, so their passes per defensive action. And essentially, the lower the number here, the higher the pressing intensity. And Spurs had a PPDA of 7.5 against Southampton. And that was their second best pressing intensity since Conte arrived certainly looking in the in the Premier League and maybe this is a sign of things to come is obviously Conte's had a, a full pre-season with his players quite a grueling pre-season from what we've seen but uh, a fantastic start for Spurs and they'll be hoping now that they can uh, keep up this early season momentum I'm sure yeah Mark Carey there stats king of the athletic and we'll get on to Emerson Royal who who he focused on there um just uh, a thing that there Jack about in my mind uh, Conte uh, it makes the team fall back to the, you know, in, into a, a solid block to defend. But it was noticeable. I think I mentioned it in the first half of the podcast that they were trying to win the ball, the ball back higher up. So I'm not seeing the signal which decides when they press and when they fall back. And maybe it's the failure of the press that leads to the fall back. Maybe it's the way the opposition break. I don't know. But it was clear that they were defending with more variety in the way they were defending than perhaps when he first got to the club and hadn't had a chance to inculcate his ideas with the players. Yeah, definitely. Like they definitely won the ball back high up the pitch. This is something that Conte talked about in the press conference afterwards. Uh, this is what I meant when I said they look how kind of fit and hungry they looked right from the start. Like they were all over. You know, in the past we've seen Saints press Tottenham all over the pitch. We saw that twice last season. Uh, whereas this time, kind of the shoe was on the other foot. Really, Tottenham didn't really give Saints much of a chance to build up anything. Uh, and Tottenham were really, really hungry, snapping it, you know, winning the ball back in a coordinated way high up the pitch. So, yeah, a big difference in that sense. And the other thing that uh, Mark pointed out there, uh, James, was that Emerson Royal, you know, while not getting the plaudits that uh, Kulusevski got, and quite rightly, he was um, pretty, pretty profoundly involved in the, in the part of the pitch where Spurs chose to attack and indeed dominated on Southampton's left. For a player we often think of as having like major weaknesses in the attacking side of his game, the way he follows that content instruction of the wing-backs attacking the penalty area, it's actually really impressive. And for the third goal, the own goal, the way he like, he ended up attacking from the left. He like went around, he passed the ball to Son and I think then went like around the outside of him and popped up on the left and played that crossing. I mean, I think, I think his crossing isn't great, but he does get into good positions in the area. And actually, I think when he gets in a position to like drill a low cross, like across a six-yard box, I, I, he's like that isn't as big a problem for him as like like swinging one in from twenty-five yards, like James Ward-Prowse would at the other end. And I was quite impressed with, I guess, how sort of gamely he was doing that because I think sometimes you watch like a, a defensive defender attack. And things don't come off. They kind of seem to lose confidence quite quickly. And that happened to him a couple of times last season. But he does seem to kind of just persist with it. And in the end, you know, he's got... Was it, was it two assists, will it? Or would it just be the He'll one? He'll get one officially, I, I think, yeah. yeah. One, yeah. 
He's got to have an assist for the Salisbury goal. I right? thought so, but um, Mark didn't seem to think so. The confidence gap between him now and him last season is huge. Like the number of times last season we'd see games where he'd get the ball out on the right, the the opposition would be willing to let him have it. That yeah, happened yeah. so much last year. The, the opposition left back or left wing back would just let Emerson have the ball. He would either swing in a rubbish cross or turn back inside and pass the ball to Benton Kerr or Skip or Hoiberg or whoever. Um, because he didn't want to kind of he didn't want to he didn't want to take on a cross that he didn't back himself to deliver. But now he's so much more assertive, whether it's running down to the byline, whipping the ball in, even as James says, like driving into the box without the ball or popping up on the other side. Like he just he seems to have a lot more faith in what he can do uh in the final third. And really that just comes down to coaching. Like it's um, you know, a, a great coach makes all the players better. And that's clearly what Conte's done. Even though clearly Royale, you know, was bought to play in a four or even on the right of a three, I think. He's not naturally a wing back at all. He's probably when everyone's fit, third choice right wing back, maybe. Um obviously when Lucas Moura you know, Lucas Moura's been tried there and before the game, me and some other journalists were having a discussion about whether it'd be unfair to call uh, Emerson, Tottenham's fourth choice right wing back. But he's much better than he was. And actually, you know, when the back end of last season after Doherty got injured, everyone was really de- pessimistic about it. And Emerson came in and played really, really well for those last few games of the season. So there is a big progression there. I mean, I think obviously he has tr- tremendous physical assets. And I think part of the issue, and you're right to talk about coaching uh, and picking up on something that uh, that James said, is that you have to convince people who are brought up as defender or defensive type players that they're allowed to go bombing into the penalty area. Um, forwards know instinctively that you can make four mistakes, but if you contribute to a goal, you're forgiven for those. Defenders find that very hard to believe. They can't, but they find it hard to understand that the manager really means it. Get on the far post, be the furthest player forward, because of course it creates chaos and it stresses traditional defensive. Systems and I think he's he's um, been freed up by that. I also I wonder whether he would have scored the goal that Sessegnon got um, because I noticed that when he's really in the top third of the pitch and the ball's coming across, he does adopt some incredible kung fu poses rather than having the natural way of going forward towards the ball to try to try and get his head or his touch into it. But I I, I mean again, you use the word gameness. Uh, anybody who puts in the kind of effort he does will always have at least five out of ten from me. It might be slightly unfair of me to bring this up, but when I was um, when I was waiting to get the train from White Hart Lane Station at uh, I don't know seven o'clock maybe on Saturday evening, mm-hmm. there were a bunch of lads next to me, and one of them was saying to his mates, "I hate Emerson Royale. If he yeah. plays against Chelsea, I'm going to boo him." And I thought, look, obviously football. You know, I'm not a Tottenham fan. Fans are entitled to their own views on things, but. It, it, it struck me as kind of unfair. Not views as bad as that. It's just, it struck me as really mean and unfair to say that you hate Emerson Royale. Like a guy who is playing in a position he wasn't signed to play in, try, tries as hard as he possibly can, has improved over the course of the last year, uh, you know, out, very much outside of his comfort zone. And have played like that in the game that had literally just taken Yeah, play. that's that, isn't I it? I mean, I can't... Uh, it just seems insane. I don't, if just think of all the players that have played for Tottenham, I'd have him quite a long way down the list of people I would hate. He's just not like the kind of bloke you hate. Do you know what I mean? It's not even the kind of, like, player. Where, where as you say, it's like he's playing out of position effectively. 
Oh, look, you know, without without, without um, coming the youth club on it, haters going to hate, aren't they? It's, mod- it's a modern <laughs> thing that um, it's a modern thing that people feel they have to hate somebody. If you, and it's, it's to do with we we give our love so easily nowadays. Oh, he he she is the greatest thing, the greatest singer, the greatest footballer I've ever seen. By definition, you have to have somebody then who uh, has to be, to be getting the dark side of that. Um, and I, I had a, I mean, you say fourth choice wing back. I had a mad fever dream where Conte played Kulusevski at right, a right wing back, and uh, Richarlison in front of him. Um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that an Italian football coach would ever allow themselves such luxury. But it was a lovely we dream. Play, right? We did play Burnley away, the infamous one nil defeat. Well, I'm pretty yeah. sure Richarlison played. Sorry, I'm pretty sure Kulusevski played right wing back for the last 30 minutes of that game. And actually, he did. did post, he did. He did. Um, and I'm just just saying, just allow yourself to imagine um, half an hour of Kulusevski at right wing back and Richarlison on the right side of the forward line. It might, if you will it, it is no dream. It might, it might be very, very good fun indeed. Listen, thank you for all of that. And we'll see whether Emerson Royale, I suppose he's a bit like Sessignon, but this is why having a, you know, a filled out squad is so important, isn't it? He's got both um, Darty and Jed Spence on his tail and we'll see how, whether that helps or hinders his game. Um, I want to move on to uh, another piece that Jack has written for the the, uh, the update. Before I do that, I should give you an update on the 1991 FA Cup final commemorative deck chair. Um, many of you uh, who listen to the podcast regularly will have seen my tweet about it yesterday. Um, and it, there it was out in the sun enjoying itself. Um, I'd say one of the oldest objects and certainly my most holy relic of supporting Spurs. Um, and as you can see, the stripes have faded um, from Spurs navy blue to Chelsea, even Brighton mid-blue. And I'll be taking on Twitter later in the day, I'll be taking suggestions of what I might do about that. I, I could try and dye the whole thing navy blue. We'll see whether we can. But I want to thank everybody who um, enjoyed the picture of the deck chair. And it's now got its own TikTok account and indeed a sponsor. Jack. You've written a piece about Daniel Levy. And the problem with Daniel, is, and it's good for your piece, is that because he hardly ever opens his beak in public, we can all speculate wildly about what it is uh, that he thinks about things. The fact that we have had such a different kind of transfer window, I mean, in comparison with some of the ones under Pochettino, obviously, um, means that... uh, you are entitled to speculate that things have changed. What, what have you been saying in The Athletic? So it's basically trying to look at this question of why why has Daniel Levy abandoned the habits of the last 20 years in this summer transfer window? Because he's done deals that he just wouldn't have done before. Like Perisic, you know, Perisic is 33 years old. He's coming on a free transfer. He's on at least £180,000 a week. Not the sort of deal that Tottenham would normally do. You know, Tottenham don't sign experienced players on massive money. I don't know what Edgar Davids was on when they signed him almost 20 years ago. But, uh, you know, even if inflation adjusted, I don't think it would have been as much as that. Um, Richarlison, again, very un-Tottenham deal, you know, to pay that 50 million plus 10 million in add-ons in June for a player who isn't, you know, he was suspended yesterday, but I don't think he's automatically a first-choice player at all for Spurs. It's very, very un-Tottenham to be this assertive. So I was looking at what might the causes of this be. Uh, I think... One is, you know, the financial situation Tottenham are in is better now. They can throw their weight around a bit more. I think the other one is the fact that Daniel Levy, you know, I think he's been dragged out of his comfort zone by the fact that he feels under a bit of pressure because he's got to keep Conte happy. He knows there's always, you know, I think Conte threatening to quit for most of last season actually had an effect. 
And I think Levy knows that Conte is very popular with the fans. He's also brilliant at his job. Levy loves having Conte there, wants Conte to stay. I think he also knows in the back of his mind, if Conte does walk, Levy will get the blame rather than the fans. So I think he has to, um, I think he, he has to keep Conte happy. And I think the way he's done that has been by, you know, by being so proactive in the market. I think Paratici's probably had a role there as well, because obviously Paratici, you know, worked at Juventus for a long time. They don't, they're very proactive in the market. They don't wait and see whatever, what other team's going to do first. Okay, and because Daniel um, Jack doesn't let us into his inner thoughts, and I say I think I understand why. Um, what do you think his, his apart from this transfer window? What are his medium-term plans uh, for the club? He's got a, a, a large shareholding. Um, he's he's one of those people who's had the same job for twenty years, which in most cases is never a very good thing. Um, but you know, he, he's he seems to be getting some things into place, even if we have no name for the stadium. What's it? What's his medium-term plan? Well, look, there's always speculation about a sale. Uh, it certainly won't have escaped attention that another team in London has just been sold for billions of pounds to guys who had tried to buy Tottenham three years ago. And this is a club which has a stadium nowhere near as good as the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. So I'm sure it will have occurred to Enoch that if they wanted to sell, they could sell for a huge amount of money. But I think that before that, I think Daniel Levy really wants to win stuff. I think he really wants, he really wants a legacy at Tottenham and a legacy means a trophy. Even, you know, we, we've reported in the past that even in negotiations about a sale, Daniel Levy's always said that he wants to stay on a CEO for the next few years. And I don't think that would, you know, Daniel Levy doesn't just want to sell the club and go skiing. Daniel Levy wants to oversee a period of success at Tottenham. In Levy's mind, Conte is the best manager he's ever worked with. He's told people that in private. He thinks that he wants to make Conte and Paracci a success. Conte and Paracci have to be a success, really, because I don't know what Levy would do next if Conte no. and Paracci failed. So Levy has to make Conte and Paracci a success. He's gone out of his comfort zone this year to try and make it a success for those two. He's invested money. And I think that he wants to kind of see this next stage through. I don't know what the post-Conte, post-Paracci no. plan is. I don't even know if Levy would know that himself. No, why would you? Um but right now, I think it's all about maximise the chance this season. I'm sure at the end, of the, you know, towards the end of the season, we'll start that they will start thinking about a new potential contract for Conte. Um, but yeah, right now it's you know it's all. I think it is all about success, um, and it's also about staying in the Champions League. You know, we, we we talk a lot about fourth or a trophy. I'm sure that for for Levy, staying in the Champions League is hugely important. Well, I think you've touched there on the on the other thing that I, I suspect, and that is. You only have to look at the shenanigans that have gone on um, with Barcelona in the last six weeks. And there was a brilliant piece. J James, help me. Um, who wrote that brilliant piece about the, not the finances, but the cultural and political background um, to, to what's been going on at Barcelona in the, last, in the last few weeks? It was in, in the Athletic last week. Well, the Adam Crafton and Paul Ballas. Uh, it it was absolutely brilliant because it set out the sequence of events that led us to where we are today. And um, that way of financing football clubs will have caused a tremor to go through all the owners of other big clubs in Europe, and I include Daniel Levy in that. But more importantly, I think it is also um, is predicated on and has made more likely, yet again, some kind of version, presumably acceptable to the fans, of a Super League. Um, and I wonder whether the Levies and the Lewises of this world are sitting on their hands because if you can get... Uh, three and a half billion for Chelsea without the Super League. Imagine what you could get for a club in a major city if, if they were in the Super League in, say, two years' time. 
Well, yeah, so Barcelona have basically sold off their future to fund the present. Or like, as you say, like predicate, I, I think predicated on the fact they're going to they're win Barcelona the, and the Super League Rebels will win this European court case to allow a Super League, at which point Joanne Laporta probably thinks our TV money will increase to the point that we can afford to hand, you know, to give a big chunk of it to these private equity funds, which are giving us money right now. But the Enoch aren't in that position. Like Enoch, you know, yeah, there's a lot of debt on the stadium, but they haven't they haven't sold off their future income. And Spurs's Spurs' debt repayments are way out in the future. And, yeah, it's uh, and, very and, long-term and, debt. And bear in mind, all of you uh, who are suffering, um, all of us who are suffering um, with the increase in inflation, that's all good. It, it, the tiny consolation is it's really good if you owe a lot of money to the banks, inflation, because the real value of what you owe goes down and down and down. I still think they ought to try and control inflation, but because uh, I remember it at 25% in the, in the 1970s. Um, I suspect there's another turn of this Super League wheel to come. Um, I think so, but I think that I think the difference between now and last and eighteen months ago in the Super League, Danny, is that the English clubs don't really need the Super League so much. The, the English clubs have been so scarred by what happened in April twenty twenty one that I don't think they have anything to gain by sticking their head above the parapet to go for a Super League now. Uh, I think you know the Premier League is such a cash cow for these big teams that I think they will happily happily sit sit and wait it out and not 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 go and be disloyal to the Premier League again. But also I think they've they've I got a better realisation of their position of strength now over those teams Massively. Europe, haven't Massively. Because you know, another what three or four transfer windows since then have really shown us, you know, not just Absolutely. Barcelona but Juventus, Real Madrid, Bayern, everyone else that can massively cut back their spending. And then even, you know, I mean, I know this is a bit of a cliche in terms of TV money. People would say clubs like Burnley earn more than Dortmund. But clubs like West Ham and Aston Villa are spending more on players than Bayern Munich now, probably. Yeah, it it, it, it is. My my optimistic hope out of this is that you're absolutely right, Jake. The fact that the English clubs don't need the Super League means that if it does come round again, I let's call it some modification of the Champions League, that it'll be much more fa- fan friendly, fan acceptable, um, and that should be the price that English clubs demand um, from their, their Mediterranean cousins, shall we say, if they're going to help. Well, what they're essentially, the English clubs are being asked to help them out of a financial hole. It's in, it's not in their interest. It would only be yeah. great if they did it, but it might make it a little bit more fan friendly. We need to keep a very very BDI. On that, listen, thank you both very much indeed for that. Don't forget that we're back to twice a week now on the View from the Lane, which is just great. On Thursday, uh, Charlie Eccleshare will be back with us and we'll hear um, from Eric Dyer and Matt Doherty um, as Charlie has spoken to them about their br- budding bromance. Um, I don't know what Deli Ali see- thinks about when he sees Eric Dyer with a new chum, but there you are. Um, and if it's the case that you're not already an Athletic subscriber, remember that you can sign up and read all the brilliant Spurs coverage of this season, as well as everything else that's on the site, which I, I can assure you is vast. Um, just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for just £1 a month for six months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Thank you for listening. And remember, we're back again on Thursday. The Athletic.